The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. To learn the rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host. Today is Thursday, so I'm delighted to welcome back my good friend, Dr. Peter Hammond. Let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with me? I am. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And folks, today we're going to be doing part two of the real story behind the bad war by M.S. King. Uh, Peter and I have spoken about this before the show. We don't know how many parts there are going to be. I've told Peter to take it at a pace that he would like. It is an extremely popular book in the alternative media. I've heard many people I listen to talk about it. So we want to give you a comprehensive series on this. Uh, So that being said, Peter, where would you like to start us off today with part two? Yes, um it's so important that we understand this. And I, I think MS King's done us a tremendous job by giving this very concise, but a pretty comprehensive as well, uh, flow in, in just over 200 pages in large format, explaining how we got to where we are now. And, uh, to understand why we are in the chaotic shambles, uh, in which we are, where cancel culture, pulling down monuments, changing names, critical race theory in the schools, BLM riots, all the different things, massive immigration, uh, white genocide being planned, uh, being able to break up uh, previous countries, destroying the the whole identity of nations and turning it into geographic accidents with multiculturalism. You know, how did we get here? And all the guilt manipulation, gaslighting, Stockholm syndrome. Well, I think MS King's put his finger right on it. The key thing is understanding the Second World War which is how we got to this mess that we're in right now. And the narrative's been, it's the good war. And of course, that was a term coined in Hollywood by the usual suspects, and they've called it the good war, but it wasn't really good in any sense. And so the title of this book, The Bad War, is just so appropriate. The Truth Never Taught About World War II is the subtitle, and it's so important that we understand. Now, uh, last week, we were going over what led to the First World War, which, of course, is uh, linked completely to the Second World War. I mean, it's really two episodes of the same uh, event in many ways. So uh, understanding the seeds of the future world wars from the 1848 Marxist manifesto, uh, going through all the different revolutionary moves leading up to the First World War, which, which really was engineered to think that we, now I'm thinking that there were 480 Hammonds who 
died in the First World War. And uh, I've, I've got that from the British and Commonwealth War Graves Commission on the computers because I've personally seen uh, the names of over 65 Hammonds just around Ypres uh, within a 10 kilometer radius of, of Ypres in Belgium, uh, the names of, of over 65 Hammonds that died in that area in the First World War. And so when I went to get more details, I found out you know, 480. I mean, just imagine what that, uh, that's just one extended family. And how many families were decimated and devastated? You just have to go into any of the great schools, um, Oxford, Cambridge, Eton, and there's these big wooden plaques, memorial plaques with the names of those who died uh, in the First World War in particular. And uh, uh, where I was brought up in Bulawayo and Rhodesia, uh, in the hall every day, I would look at these big wall plaques. You couldn't believe me in Rhodesia is a long way from Belgium and from Flanders. And yet there we had long lists of names of Rhodesian boys who died uh, in the First World War and shorter amounts of those who died in the second. But how many people know, uh, and, and this is the sort of thing that MS King's book, uh, The Bad War, is so effective for, he's bringing out facts that are often either neglected or twisted or uh, completely and utterly omitted in the normal narrative, meaning whether you're talking about the Hollywood version or uh, the school textbook versions. But how many know that during the Battle of Verdun in 1916, for 10 months, there were over 300,000 battlefield deaths, uh, most of them being French, 30,000 deaths for each of the 10 months of battle. And this absolutely exhausted the French army. It devastated them. And uh, it was really madness. Now, at the end of 1916, uh, there was an election in the United States of America, and Woodrow Wilson got uh, re-elected on the uh, slogans of preparedness, peace, and prosperity. He kept us out of war. Vote Woodrow Wilson. That's, that's the 1916 buttons. In fact, this is so nice about the book, The Bad Boy. He's got pictures of all of these things documenting it, and it's, it's quite extraordinary. So Woodrow Wilson, who campaigned in 1916 uh, to keep America out of war, in 1917 brought America into war. Now, why? How? How did that happen? Well, interestingly, at the end of 1916, December 1916, uh, Germany had the advantage. France had suffered such horrible losses that their military was basically in mutiny. Russia was facing internal red revolutionary chaos and having lost millions already uh, either killed or injured or captured, the uh, uh, Russian Empire was was uh, at an absolute standstill and people were in uh, such revolt they couldn't even get food and bread in Moscow and Petersburg. And Britain was under U-boat blockade and not a single square inch of Germany had been occupied. And so from this position of great strength, where Germany had basically won the war on both the Western and the Eastern Front and were able to wage a war not just on two fronts but three fronts because down in uh, uh, Austria the Italians had attacked and Germany had to send through forces there to assist them as well and so you have the situation where Germany's fighting on three fronts you could even add four if you talk about what was going on with the war with Romania and and, uh, and so on even Turkey uh, so despite uh, being encircled surrounded and despite the Royal Navy blockade of Germany Germany was ending 1916 um, undefeated on every level. And therefore, it's even more extraordinary that the Kaiser offered to stop the war and basically reset back to the pre-1914 
boundaries before the war had erupted. And so uh, extraordinary considering how many people had died, how much destruction had been made, and the Kaiser, who's being accused of being the warmonger, even though, as has been documented, he did more than anybody else to try and stop the slip and slide into this insanity of the First World War. Uh, now he gets blamed the most because that's the victor's version. They rewrite history to put their opponents in the worst light possible and themselves in the best light possible. But the facts of history show Kaiser Willem actually tried very energetically to stop the slide into war, appealing to the heads of each of the different nations involved, including uh, the British King George and uh, the Tsar Nicholas II. Uh, he really tried to stop the slide of the war. Now in 1916, from a position of strength, he says, let's just recognize there's been a bad idea. Let's stop the fighting on all fronts and just return to pre-1914 uh, pre borders, which actually would have made a lot of sense because we know how many millions, in fact, tens of millions more died after 1916 because the worst was still ahead. And if they'd stopped in 1916, the world would be a different place. But at this particular point, Zionists approached, uh, in the name of uh, Chaim Weizmann and uh, Nathan Sokolo, approached the British with a deal. They, because the British were seriously tempted to accept the Kaiser's offer of an armistice and reset and uh, let's all just go home and, and admit this was a bad idea all around. And said, you don't have to... Um, uh, uh, go for peace. Um, and the British, well, there's no way we can win. Uh, this is worse than a stalemate. Um, we, we're actually losing. And so the Zionists made an offer. They said, we will bring the United States into war on your side. If you will guarantee us the land of Palestine, which of course was not British, it was part of the Ottoman Empire and had been for centuries. Um, and if you will allow us to make a Jewish homeland in Palestine, take it away from Turkey, we will bring America in for the war. Now, uh, the British government's got a bit of a history of offering things to others that they don't actually own themselves. And so it's intriguing that after the Crimean War, for example, which was fought to prevent Russia having undue influence in the, in the Middle East, particularly Turkey, and prevent them having an ice-free port uh, getting into the Mediterranean through the Bosphorus. And so Britain and France supported the anti-Christian Ottoman Empire that was massacring Christians. And we found ourselves on the wrong side in the Crimean War, despite the heroism of the Charge of the Light Brigade and Battle of Balaclava and so on, and the tremendous heroism of, uh, of Florence Nightingale inventing the modern nursing movement uh, during Crimean War. The Crimean War, we were on the wrong side because Russia was attempting to punish the Ottoman Turks for having massacred Christians by the thousands in their territories and Russia, being the guardian of Orthodox Christians, uh, were seeking to put pressure on Turkey to behave themselves and treat their Christian subjects well. And lo and behold, but France and Britain came in on the Ottoman Turkish side against the Christian Orthodox Russians. And it, it was a shameful thing, the Crimean War, but, but that's another story. Now, Britain offers Russia the Bosphorus Canal and if they will uh, fight against Turkey, which is just... Uh, the, the reversal of policy. So suddenly, December 1916, uh, there is this uh, approach to the British government, uh, give us Palestine and we will bring America in on the war. And so this led to the Balfour Declaration. And uh, this is absolutely quite astounding, where Britain promised 
the Jewish Zionist Federation and Chaim Weizmann, um, yes, we will guarantee that you will get the Bosphorus, uh, I mean, you will get the Palestine, which is at the moment under the control of the Turks, and uh, you bring America into the war. Now, how could they bring America into the war? Well, as documented earlier in this book, uh, Zionists had basically taken control of the entire mass media in uh, the United States. And so they had the New York Times, they had just about everything in terms of news media. The whole of the news media in the United States was basically owned uh, by Zionists, and therefore they were able to uh, make this promise to Britain, which they made good on, because the Americans in 1916 were overwhelmingly isolationist. Over 85% were against getting involved in Europe's wars, listening to George Washington's do not get involved in entangling alliances. And so right there, um, the, the Zionists had a challenge because the bulk of Americans didn't want to get involved in Europe's wars and hadn't. And why would they? And what benefit could they have? Well, at this point, interesting timing, uh, February 1917, the February Revolution topples the Russian royal family, the Romanovs. And so communists, progressive socialists, disaffected soldiers all combined to destabilize the weakened situation of Russia and undermined the Tsar to the point that the Tsar was forced to abdicate February 1917. Now, bear in mind, as documented well earlier, that the primary goal of the Zionists had always been to take on the Tsar and replace the Tsar. This, this was a big goal. Now, with the Tsar about to be toppled, the next step was being planned. Well, up till then, the media in America had been pretty much neutral regarding Germany because uh, Germany was fighting against Russia, which was the main target of the Zionists. And Germany had a Rothschild bank too, so they weren't really a big problem there. And so the American people had not been galvanized into an anti-German mindset yet. But now the media went to overdrive with all kinds of fabricated stories of German atrocities in Belgium and so on. And it went off the charts and started to target now Germany because the benefit was to get the British to win so that the British could take the Ottoman Empire so that Palestine could be made available as a homeland for the Jews. And so the Russian economy was now um, in peril, and this left-wing coalition government consisting of socialists, communists, was established, and that was the February Revolution. And the, now the power struggle was between a democratic socialist and a hardcore communist, or the Bolsheviks, and this was following. And so in April 1917, Woodrow Wilson, just re-elected, breaks his election promise and brings America into war. And extraordinary, this intensive propaganda campaign was unleashed on the people of the United States. They start to resurrect the Lusitania incident, ignoring the fact that the Lusitania was a merchant marine vessel that had been built with the funding of the Royal Navy, was listed in Jane's fighting ships as a Royal Navy auxiliary ship, actually had armaments on and was carrying six million rounds of ammunition and hundreds of tons of shells, uh, fragmentary shells. Uh, it, it had a colossal amount of weaponry and uh, totally illegal contraband that a neutral country was not allowed to provide, even by American law, it was illegal, not to mention the Hague and Geneva Conventions, and uh, ignored all that, suppressed all that, sealed those for over 60 years that nobody could know the contents of the Lusitania files. And so 
At this point, they came out with a fabricated propaganda stunt. This was another uh, British intelligence uh, a coup. The Zimmermann note, which took a German contingency plan uh, that had considered the possibility of being allied with Mexico if the United States entered the war and attacked Germany. This was then completely twisted in order to make it seem that Germany was plotting to attack America, which of course it was not. And so citing all kinds of various phony pretexts, Woodrow Wilson, uh, who was already under blackmail from an affair he had when he was a Princeton professor, Woodrow Wilson asked Congress for declaration of war and unbelievably Congress complied and the Americans started to provide recruits to come into the war to provide fresh troops. The British were exhausted, the French were exhausted, and so these fresh millions of American soldiers would soon be able to turn the tide, not the least the vast amount of weaponry that the United States could supply as well from its factories. So at this point, April 1917, the exiled Reds started to return to Russia. And that included Vladimir Lenin, who had been in exile in Switzerland. He was able to return. And then the, uh, and he came with a huge amount of gold um, provided by Zionists from Switzerland. And Leon Trotsky, uh, who was um, Levi Bronstein, that was his actual name, but Leon Trotsky, who had been in exile in New York and hadn't been working while there, managed to uh, depart through Canada with millions and millions of dollars and vast amounts of gold. Uh, and it's been documented how well funded he was. And so the Reds returned from exile, Trotsky and Lenin in particular, and they were able to, uh, Trotsky was accompanied with a whole lot of other Zionists and leather jackets, and they were well funded. And so the Red Army basically starts with Leon Trotsky, and he has such funding, they've got the best of the best, the best vehicles, the best weapons, the best machine guns, they men all um, kitted out in, in expensive leather coats and all of this, and they are well funded. And so they're able to, with this huge funding from, from Wall Street, and this is well documented by Professor Anthony Sutton in his the, uh, the Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution and the best enemy money you can buy, how Wall Street bankers, Zionists all, managed to fund the Bolshevik Revolution. And so April 1917, Edward Bernays, who is called the father of American propaganda, uh, who's a nephew of the psychoanalyst Sigmund Freud, uh, Edward Bernays, who's a Zionist himself, established the Committee on Public Information for the purpose of manipulating public opinion of Americans to support the war. And this is something Woodrow Wilson basically pioneers uh, propaganda by getting Edward Bernays to be the father of PR, or PR is short for propaganda. And, and today they've changed PR to public relations, but it's just a term that uh, that Edward Bernays took propaganda during wartime to PR, commercialized it, made a lot of money um, marketing everything from cigarettes to women onwards. And uh, so Edward Bernays uh, spoke about the engineering of consent. And he wrote a book in 1928, uh, called Propaganda, we explained the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in any democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of a country. We are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes are formed, our ideas are suggested, largely by men we've never heard of. 
It is they who pull the wires that control the public mind. And in fact, the uh, cover of his book, Propaganda, the Public Mind in the Making, has a whole lot of wires being pulled on a man in the middle, and it's almost like a spider's web. Uh, that's the way he depicted it on the cover of his book, entitled Propaganda, the making of the public mind. And he spoke about the manufacturing of consent. So Edward Bernays and his Committee for Public Information, co-conspirators, portrayed the American war effort as a holy crusade to make the world safe for democracy in the war to end all wars. And while at the same time spread the vile, hateful propaganda directed against Germany, and particularly the emperor, Kaiser Wilhelm II, producing such subtle films as To Hell with the Kaiser. And there was all kinds of hideous uh, pictures of babies being bayoneted by German soldiers and other imaginative slander. Well, June 1917, Woodrow Wilson signed a military draft into law, and then they mobilized vicious hate propaganda to attract volunteers, and they even prosecuted and jailed Mennonites, Amish, and other pacifists who, for good reason, didn't want to be part of uh, any war. And uh, America's military was small, but its capacity in terms of economy and industry to equip the army was huge. So to be able to recruit more than 2 million people into the army, they had to be able to paint this in different pictures from, you know, this is to help get a homeland in Palestine for the Zionists or um, things like this, or to get the British industries that owe American industries a fortune to be able to pay it back. We've got to get them to be able to win the moment they seem to be losing or at least heading for a stalemate. And so the Zionists delivered on their end of the deal uh, in getting America into the war. And so uh, the British um, Lord Balfour issued the uh, Balfour Declaration addressed to Walter Rothschild. And it read in part, His Majesty's government views with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national homeland for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. Now, this is a published letter. You can see it signed uh, quite clear from the Foreign Office um, and uh, on their letter addressed to Lord Rothschild. Uh, so interesting, Balfour Declaration is not a conspiracy theory. This is a fact. It's historical. We know because the Zionists produced this at the Versailles Treaty to demand uh, that Britain fulfill her obligations and hand this over. And this is the first that the German people suddenly realized about the stab in the back because Germany had been very friendly and hospitable to the Jewish people and they had prospered enormously and ran most of the banks in Germany and news media and entertainment and all the rest. And so uh, the, the shock of the Balfour Declaration when it was made known after the war at the Versailles Treaty uh, led to what uh, in many cases uh, was the rise of Adolf Hitler and uh, the national socialist policy, which was to reverse the treachery of Versailles and uh, uh, the whole Balfour Declaration played a key role in it. Well, October the 25th in 1917, the October Revolution occurred in Russia. Now, there can be a confusion because the new style Gregorian calendar was 7th of November. So we speak of the October Revolution, even though it occurred according to our calendar in November, because at that stage, Russia was still on the... the um, uh, old style calendar. So the October Revolution 1917 was when the Bolsheviks seized full control over Russia. Now, they'd been part of the earlier revolution in February, but now uh, this was to 
get rid of the moderates or the center uh, socialists and to bring right uh, the extreme radical left-wing Bolsheviks, communists to power. The socialist prime minister Kerensky tried to keep the economy afloat and he tried to keep this unstable coalition government together, but he made a terrible mistake. He tried to keep Russia in the war and the Russian people were fed up with the war, nonstop defeats, honestly, uh, to them, how many millions more must die? They want an end to it. And so very wisely, Lenin promised peace. No matter what the price, we will sign peace treaty with Germany, we'll end the war, end the conscription, and your troops can come home, which is exactly what the people wanted. And without thinking longer term as to what the Bolsheviks are going to do, uh, Kerensky's government, sadly, because they supported the war, lost the support to people. So that when the Bolsheviks, which was a small group, seized power in St. Petersburg, um, just a battalion of dedicated soldiers would have been able to oust them, but nobody was willing to fight for Kerensky's government, uh, the Duma, uh, because they were committed to keeping Russia in the war, and the people were just absolutely exhausted from the war and wanted out. And so Lenin had very wisely, from his perspective, taken a position of in the war, and Kerensky very unwisely kept the position of we will stay in the war, which is why nobody rose up to stop the Bolshevik Revolution in October 25, 1917. And so Kerensky had to flee for his life, and the Soviet regime now immediately moved to pull Russia out of the war, which was very, very popular. And uh, now this government was not recognized as legitimate almost anywhere, and soon a bloody civil war erupted between the Reds and the Whites, now, the Reds were the Bolsheviks, who were overwhelmingly Zionist-run, Jewish-run by Zionists like Trotsky, and uh, in fact, virtually the entire Politburo were, were uh, Jewish, and the, the Whites were the Christians, uh, the Orthodox Christians, who were opposing uh, the Bolsheviks, and it took time to raise it up. But interesting, here's a forbidden quote uh, from David Francis, America's ambassador to Russia in 1918. Uh, David Francis, American ambassador to Russia, stated the Bolshevik leaders here, most of whom are Jews and 90% of whom are returned exiles, care little for Russia or any other country, but they're internationalists and they're trying to start a worldwide socialist revolution. Now, that's a quote from January 1918 from the American ambassador to Russia. And immediately after the fall of St. Petersburg to the Bolsheviks, a counter-revolutionary civil war uh, tried to oust them. And a lot of this was led by Admiral Kolchak, and Admiral Kolchak led the so-called whites uh, against the Reds, who were the, the Marxists. And when it became apparent that the Red Revolutionary Army was composed of a very small amount that was far too small to put down the counter-revolution, Trotsky instituted mandatory conscription of all the peasants into the Red Army. Now, there was huge opposition. They'd just come out of war. They didn't want to get into a new one. And so opposition to the Red Army conscription was tackled with terror tactics. Hostages and their families were tortured and killed to force compliance. And the Red Army first waged war on their own population so that they could conscript enough of the peasants to help them fight against the whites who were better trained and uh, more disciplined. Now, in January 1918, Woodrow Wilson laid out a 14-point peace program and Germany, in fact, responded very positively because it wasn't much different from their own peace proposals of uh, 1916. So had it 
not being for America's 1917 entry into war, the stalemated parties would have had to stop fighting on their own. They were already exhausted. Millions of lives could have been saved. When America teaches that they saved the world and saved democracy, it's actually the opposite. If America had stayed out of the war, the war would have ended earlier. Yes, everyone was beyond exhausted by the end of 1916 anyway. And if it hadn't been for America infusing fresh blood in the terms of their troops, two million odd, and the weaponry that they poured in, extra capital poured in, the war would have spluttered to halt, stalemated, and the politicians would have been forced to make peace. There's no doubt about that. And so before the fresh new rivers of American uh, personnel uh, came in, and uh, bear in mind that 117,000 Americans died uh, in the First World War, just between April and November of 1918, uh, before the American forces could get in, the Germans and Austrians again communicated the desire for peaceful resolution, as they had been previously proposing to make a mutually acceptable peace with Britain and France all along. There'd even been attempts in 1915 for this, but 1916, very serious. And so Woodrow Wilson uh, offered the 14 points, which was basically no winners, no losers. Uh, everyone uh, revert back to, which is basically what had been uh, proposed by the Kaiser a few years before. And he gave a whole lot of uh, promises of self-determination and no handing over of territories uh, to uh, foreigners to run and things like this. And a lot of it was just, yes, 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 indeed, absolutely, we agree. And so uh, after uh, announcing this and after Austria and Germany saying, we agree with the 14 points, then suddenly Woodrow Wilson dismissed these promising peace overtures as unacceptable. And uh, Woodrow Wilson's New York handlers, which was Baruch and Schiff and Warburg and Morgenthau and Brundus and so on, these banksters, they wanted their war. They were not happy with a premature peace. There still need to be more blood flowed. And, and of course, Russia wasn't fully under the control of the Reds yet. So uh, it was an absolutely shocking thing that despite Germany and Austria accepting the peace proposals already in January of 1918, Woodrow Wilson dragged it out and wouldn't accept this. And they were waiting for a spring offensive. Well, because the communists in Russia made peace with Germany, Germany could move millions of troops from the Eastern Front over to the Western Front. And this meant that Germany could now launch a new fresh offensive in March 1918. And at this point, the Germans advanced um, 40 miles and Paris was just 75 miles away. And so the spring offensive was so successful, they even had March 24th declared national holiday in Germany. And at this exact point, when Germany was on the offensive, actually winning again in France, uh, even though they'd never lost up till this point, suddenly Marxists and Zionists in Germany stabbed the country in the back. The Marxist trade union leaders ordered factory strikes, depriving German troops of critical supplies, weapons, medical supplies, food and everything else. And suddenly the German press, which was owned by Jews, which had been fanning the war passions in 1914 and uh, in fact inciting war with the main goal of bringing down the Tsar and Tsarist Russian Empire, uh, now suddenly that the Tsar was gone and Russia was communist, now they suddenly turned against the war and started to tear into attacking the German military and attacking German morale. So the German newspapers and media and also the uh, German labor unions, all of which were controlled by Zionists, suddenly did an about change and started to undermine German morale at the very point that 
the Americans began to arrive at the front. And so uh, Germany had made, had made tremendous strides, hoping to bring the people to a peace table early. And uh, now they were stabbed in the back. Industry came to a standstill through the nationwide uh, strikes and, and boycotts. The media turned against them in their own homeland. And at this point, the Americans arrived. And uh, uh, the first American victory was, in fact, totally contrived because what was happening is it was a salient. There was a big bulge. And to consolidate the border, the Germans were doing a withdrawal. And so they were withdrawing at the very point that the Americans attacked. And uh, there must have been some intelligence uh, breach uh, that they knew about this. So that this great offensive where the Americans went to have gained so much ground in their first attack is really propaganda and distortion because Germans were withdrawing from that whole area anyway at the moment that the Americans attacked. And so it gave the illusion of a, a victory. And uh, so on the brink of a major victory militarily, uh, the March Offensive, suddenly uh, Germany was founding their troops didn't have enough supplies, didn't have enough weapons. Uh, the whole uh, industry behind them had uh, come to a standstill and their morale was being undermined back at home and the media was turning the people against them. And so while it had taken America about a, a full year to get its military drafted, trained, deployed, uh, by the summer of 1918, they were getting 10,000 new American troops arriving at the front every day. And uh, they lost a huge amount of men in the, just the few months that they were at the front. But now the French and the British war machines were being resupplied with the tremendous uh, amount of uh, weaponry that were able to come from America. And so the Americans now enabled the Allies to have a counterattack, which was called the Hundred Days Offensive. And at the Battle of Amiens, the Allies advanced a whole seven miles into German-held territory. And uh, the press in Germany, run by the Jews, ignored the devastating effects of the Jewish-led factory strikes, ignored the defeatism, and started to blame the generals for the recent setbacks. And uh, it's just extraordinary. At this point, July the 16th, 1918, Tsar Nicholas and his entire family were brutally murdered. Tsar Nicholas II had hoped to be exiled to Britain while Kerensky was the prime minister in power in Russia, but his British ally refused to take him in. King George II refused to allow his cousin and, and nieces and nephew to come in uh, to Brit British protection in exile uh, because they thought that it would look bad in the eyes of the Americans who were anti-monarchist to have a person who had been so badly portrayed in the press because Tsar Nicholas had always been a target of the Zionists to accuse him of killing six million Jews multiple times already in, in the first part of the century. And so there was no a way that, that the King of England thought that he could take in uh, the Russian royal family, the Romanovs, uh, and still maintain American support. And so refused them uh, sanctuary and so... To think that Tsar Nicholas, as a boy, had seen the murder by bombing of his grandfather, Tsar Alexander II, in 1881. And uh, uh, he had also, being a kind man and a Christian, had failed to execute the Reds after the failed 1905 revolution and only exiled people like Lenin and Trotsky. And now his misguided mercy returned to haunt him and his family. So the evening of the 16th and to the morning of the 17th of July, the royal family of the Romanovs were awakened, told to dress, heard it in the cell of a house in which they were held and 
these reds, all MKVD or Cheka, uh, what became the KGB, every one of them Jews, gunned down the entire family and their doctor and their three servants in cold blood, including the wife, the Tsarina, and their four beautiful daughters and their young son, all killed. Uh, and uh, this brutal murder, of course, sent shockwaves throughout Russia and all of Christian Europe, even though it was denied by the Allies for years and years that this had happened or that it had been authorized by Lenin. Well, after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, uh, the files uh, were unsealed and it was ordered from the very top. Vladimir Lenin did order it. And uh, for decades, the media was that, you know, this was some low-level decision, but it wasn't made by the, the Supreme Soviet Politburo. Well, now we know in the documents out, there's no doubt, and the Russian government says, has published it. Yes, it was ordered from the top. Uh, absolutely disgusting. We've had a whole program on the murder of the Russian royal family. Well, the uh, British previous campaigns against the Turks had ended in dismal failure. Just one word suffice for that, Gallipoli, uh, which was a Winston Churchill endeavor where he broke with the tradition and the teachings and the whole instruction of uh, the uh, great naval admiral Nelson that ships should not fight forts. And indeed, uh, Winston Churchill sent in the Royal Navy to uh, storm through the Bosphorus, even though there were uh, forts on both sides of Bosphorus. And of course, the Royal Navy lost a huge amount of battleships, destroyers, cruisers. Uh, it was a misguided effort. And then to follow this failure up by sending in Australian New Zealand troops uh, to try and storm these forts, which had now had months warning to get even more strongly fortified, and they barely got off the beaches. And uh, it, it, it was just wave after wave of suicide uh, charges. And you can understand why there's still some pretty anti-British sentiment and anti-Winston uh, Churchill sentiment in Australia and New Zealand. And I remember Anzac Day uh, to this day um, over the way they were used as cannon fodder and their lives thrown away for no good reason uh, in the Gallipoli campaign. Well, um, now... Uh, Britain is coveting the oil fields of the Middle East that the Ottoman Empire control. But they also have a debt to repay to the Zionist bosses who dragged America into the war. So assisting the British in the efforts to obtain Palestine were 10,000 American Jews who enlisted not to fight alongside the fellow Americans in Europe, but for the British who intend to seize their future home, Palestine. And this is the Jewish Legion. Uh, interesting. So there were 10,000 American Jews fighting alongside the British to take Palestine from the Arab inhabitants there. During this time, the British aeroplanes dropped leaflets over Germany, printed in Yiddish, declaring the Balfour Declaration to seek to win Jewish support within Germany by promising them a homeland in Palestine after they've won the war. And that's kind of intriguing. So leaving the Americans to do the heavy lifting against Germany on the Western Front, the British sent more forces to the South to fight the Ottoman Empire and to obtain both oil fields for Britain and to obtain the uh, land of Palestine for the Zionists to establish their state. At this point, Lenin and Trotsky established the Communist International, which was to be called the Comintern or Communist International, where they openly stated the intention was to fight by all available means, including armed force, for the overthrow of the international bourgeois and for the creation of an international Soviet Republic world government. 
And from 1918 to 1920, Comintern affiliate parties were formed in France and Italy and China and Germany and Spain and Belgium and the United States and many other countries, even down South Africa. And all the communists operate under the direction of the Comintern, the Moscow Reds, who were financed by globalist bankers from New York, the same people who created the Federal Reserve Bank in America and had brought about the Great War. And the Russian communists planned to use terror to intimidate their Christian adversaries, the whites, into submission. And so on orders from Lenin and Trotsky, the Red Terror was announced by the Yakov Svedlov, uh, one of the worst of the mass murderers. And the Red Terror was marked by mass arrests in the middle of the night, executions, hideous, unbelievably demonic tactics of torture. Hundreds of thousands of Russians were murdered in the Red Terror, carried out by the Jewish-run Cheka, these leather-clad secret police. And amongst them, these atrocities often carried out in front of the victim's family members were 40,000 white prisoners publicly hanged in the Ukraine, burning coals inserted into women's vaginas, crucifixions, rapes of women of all ages, victims submerged in boiling oil or tar, victims doused with petrol and burned alive, victims placed in coffins filled with hungry rats, victims soaked with water turned into human ice cubes in winter, priests, monks, nuns, having molten lead from church uh, ornaments poured down their throats. And the demoralizing terror took a heavy psychological toll on the frightened, disoriented Russian people, already numbed by the losses of the war and the loss of so many of the people. So by 1922, many of the Russian people were broken into submission by the red monsters of the Cheka, which was, of course, started by Leon Trotsky and funded to a large extent by Bolshevik uh, supporting bankers in New York as documented by Anthony Sutton's Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution. So by November 1918, it was clear that Germany could no longer win the war, but its policy was not to lose it either. And so, as he had in 1916, the Kaiser offered to negotiate peace on terms favorable to all. And though Germany couldn't win, the Allies couldn't win either. Germany's eastern front with Russia was secure and closed. There were no Allied troops in German soil. The capital, Berlin, was 900 miles from the front. The German military was capable of defending its homeland for invasion. But the home front was undermined. Treasonous politicians, Marxist labor union leaders, Zionist media Mongols, all combined to demoralize the will of the people. And so at this point, the Kaiser was forced to step down and be exiled. And on November the 11th, 1918, Marxists formed what they called the Weimar Republic, formed in the city of Weimar, and they announced an armistice. The German soldiers to lay down their arms, even though they hadn't lost a war, they were still on enemy territory, no part of Germany had been covered, but on the basis of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points promises, peace without victory, self-determination, all the rest of it, the November criminals placed Germany at the total mercy of the new world order, and that led to Marxist revolutionaries like Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht founding the Spartacus lead. And they had revolutions in Berlin, revolutions in uh, Bavaria, in Munich. And there was attempts to establish communist uh, uh, states in, in, within Germany. The Jewish Red Bella Kun took control of Hungary and there were coups and massacres. And this was very serious. And coming straight after the murder of the Russian royal family and the massacres and terror in Russia and the Bolshevik Revolution, you can understand uh, this looked like 
just about the end of the world for the people in Germany. And uh, the Freikorps, which was German soldiers who had returned from the front, these veterans, they alone, uh, on their own initiative, managed to save Germany from communist revolution like the Bolshevik revolution. And so in this situation, Germany had not lost, Germany had not surrendered, but they had laid down their arms on a promise of Woodrow Wilson to respect a peace without victors and that the 14 points would be on it, which they were not, not one of them were. And that brought one to the hideous Versailles Peace Conference. And so there's a lot more that one could say on this, but this brings us to understanding how Germany was basically gang-raped by the Treaty of Versailles. That's a subtitle here in the book. And how Germany was kept under hunger blockade for nine months after the war had ended, nine months after soldiers had laid down their arms in accordance with the 14 points. But until they agreed with the transfer of all the gold and the whole of their territories and signed the Treaty of Versailles, Germans were dying. Over 100,000 died of starvation after the armistice, after the ceasefire, uh, with the hunger blockade of the Royal Navy continuing in order to force them to a point where they would agree to this absolutely outrageous Versailles Treaty, which has to have been the very worst uh, treaty in the history of the world, the most counterproductive. And uh, in this situation, Germany was really gang raped. And I think that's uh, not overstating it. This brings us to the end of section two of the bad war, uh, which leads into the forces that sought to reverse the Versailles Treaty, and which ultimately uh, was countered with the Second World War. So we've, um, we've got through uh, section two of the bad war, Section three is ahead of us. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Yes, sorry, just getting to the mute button there. Yep, it is fascinating, isn't it? And um, obviously the way that Mike King writes as well. Uh, he's, he's a great writer who has an ability of condensing so much information into an interesting uh, story. His use of brevity is, is second to none, uh, while still being able to get all the salient facts out in an interesting manner. And that is why this book is so well thought of in the alternative media. And I'm delighted that uh, we're doing the series on it. How many sections are there uh, in the book? Yes, the, the whole book is seven sections, but uh, the last one, the, the aftermath of World War II, is, is quite short, but uh, still. So... Um, I think uh, the whole thing is so enlightening. And of course, we've just laid the foundations. In many ways, some of the most shocking things are still ahead, if you can believe that. I mean, <laughs> World War One is shocking enough when you realize that it was totally avoidable, it was completely unnecessary, and that millions of lives were sacrificed and Western civilization was undermined just by the greed of a bunch of, I can use the word banksters to take the word banker and gangster and put it together. Yeah, and the other interesting thing as well, you know, we it's this same group that um, are pulling the strings today. Um, you know, you had Schiff funding the Bolsheviks and then they were led by Lenin, whose real name was Ulyanov, and Trotsky, whose real name was Bronstein. And uh, you talked about uh, Rosa Luxemburg. I think she was part of that same tribe. Am I right uh, there? Oh, uh, yes, no, definitely. Uh, I mean, this is it. They're doing these red revolutions. So, you know, According to the way modern history comes, it was, you know, one day this horrible person, Adolf Hitler, just decided to start a world war. And um, no context, no understanding of what's behind it, no understanding of all that was done to avoid war. And uh, 
you know, how they demonized the Kaiser and demonized the German fear of the Second World War II uh, on the basis of things that were actually done to them rather than things that they planned or wanted or initiated. And if you don't get the context, uh, you know, just think if you're watching a Dirty Harry movie, the first Dirty Harry movie, Clint Eastwood, uh, there's this uh, a policeman in, in uh, San Francisco. If you just went to the scene in the football field where he shoots this man running across the field in the leg and then goes and stands on the wounded leg while the person screams, what do you see? Police brutality. But if you know the context that this man's a serial murderer and he's kidnapped someone who's buried in a place with running out of oxygen, and here's this policeman trying to uh, find out where uh, this kidnapped girl is so that he can save a life, seconds are counting, time is running out, and uh, if you know the context, well, oh, well, that sort of changes the perception. But what's so often lacking in history and films and based on a true story type of Hollywood fiction uh, is context. They don't tell you what happened and what the other side was doing. Uh, it's not good enough to just show, say, a policeman hitting someone with a baton. You've got to know what was a person doing beforehand? What's the context? And uh, I think that's what's so important about the bad war. It shows that it wasn't a good war at all, uh, neither in its intention nor in its results or even in its execution. And this is forbidden history. Why is it that a book like this is banned on Amazon? Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And the interesting, that's such a, a really good analogy there. Because funnily enough, I just typed in uh, a an expression that many of you will have heard. It's an old Russian proverb. And uh, it's, uh, the Jew will tell you what happened to him, but he won't tell you why. And that's down as an old Russian proverb. And uh, I've typed that into quant.com. And only got two results at the top from ifunny.co. And when I click on it, it says, sorry, that page is missing. Do you want to check if a saved version is available on the Wayback Machine? <laughs> so, oh you know, wherever you go oh, now, geez. if they can scrub history, they will scrub history. And I, we hear all these people, oh, it's fascism and all this, what we're going through today. Unfortunately, a lot of them, I think, are actually genuine in their belief there because what they're trying to do is equate the draconian rules that we're living under today with lockdowns and trying to jab everybody with this... Uh, poison uh, with what they regard as the worst thing that ever happened in history and that can only be what they were taught and what they were taught was the worst thing that ever happened in history was Adolf Hitler and so therefore they call it fascism but if they actually were told the real story of World War II and if they just heard this show and heard what these Bolsheviks did to the white people in Russia then they wouldn't be calling it fascism today. They'd be calling it communism, which is exactly what it is. It's led by the same people, and it's designed to have similar ends. But this time, it's on a worldwide basis. So it's extremely concerning, and that's why it's extremely important that we get messages like this out to you and books like The Bad War. I mean, why did they go around banning it left, right, and centre? Surely people can make their own decisions what they want to read. Because it's too dangerous for them. It's not enough that they control all the mainstream. They now need to knock out all the alternative as well. I'll give you a quick example. There's a guy called Richie Allen who does the Richie Allen show that I listen to Monday to Friday. I went to download his show on Monday and it was only a little while after he'd have put it up because I didn't listen live. So it's probably about 30 minutes after the show ended. 
It took 40 minutes to download it. I thought, well, that's probably a lot of people are going there now. Do you know what I mean? And so they're probably just, um, you know, everyone's trying to get it after it just came out. So I thought for Tuesday's show, I'll wait till Wednesday morning. So I did. It took about 20 minutes to download it. And this is a guy who was talking on his show about how he was contacted by a podcast company, ranking company, who told him he was among the top 50 in the UK. He's got a 200,000-person audience in Europe. He's one of the biggest alternative media shows out there. Uh, and he's beating sh podcasts off the BBC, LBC, Talk Radio, all these, you know, famous names. And he's beating them. And then what happens earlier in the year? First thing, he loses his Facebook account. Well, that's a bit of inconvenient and what have you. And then his um, listeners used to communicate with him by Twitter on the show. So they take his Twitter account off him. And then the, most recently, he has his PayPal account, account taken off him. And now, I'm trying to download his show, and they're clearly hemorrhaging the feed. It's just amazing. These people have got absolutely no scruples whatsoever. Their me message is, we are in control. We will do whatever we need to do to silence you. And we do not have a legal system that will challenge this. And we'll say, no, you can't do this. You can't take people's ability to make, uh, you know, make a living or their ability to spread a message because you don't like that message when that message is not illegal. But instead, we read on a weekly basis now. When I look at the Daily Mail, there's one story after another about a certain group who feel that nasty things have been said about them and someone's up in court on it. And it just goes on and on and on and on. And so we know he's in control. And the police and the legal system, people who are listening who, who can't work out why we're anti-vax. Well, if you can tell me one decent thing my government has ever done for me, they've never stood up for me. I served my country as a police officer, but they've never stood up for me. They've just allowed this group to take away my livelihood. So I just want to, you know, throw that in there, folks, because... All this nonsense about trying to get you to get a jab. Just look at what your government allows to go on in your country and ask yourself if they do anything to, to benefit you or if you would rather that there was someone else in charge who was running things who had some element of morality and Christianity about them. So, Peter, back to you for your final uh, thoughts and please let the audience know where they can find your work and how they can contact you. Yes, I, I must say, uh, I've got to say, for our government here in South Africa too, they steal us blind. There's a lot of incompetence, criminality. Uh, they will ignore uh, real crimes, order the police stand by and do nothing while entire shopping centers are looted and then burned. But they will mobilize to force us to wear masks, to arrest us for running around empty field or walk, um, walking our dogs during their lockdowns. And so uh, why would I trust them when they want to stick some who knows what uh, uh, cocktail uh, in my body and uh, no we, we don't trust them and in fact there's a lot of warnings in the bible not to be gullible and not to uh, be deceived and uh, there's uh, the warnings that satan deceives the world and he deceives the nations and the day will come when the lord will send an angel to bind the nation bind satan that he might deceive the nations no more so nations are being deceived today and if we find ourselves in general agreement with the world uh, like United Nations and the world media and Hollywood, then we've got to know we've been deceived. So if people want to get hold of me, my email is peter at frontline.org.za. Peter at frontline.org.za, or ZA as Americans would say. And uh, our website, www.frontlinemissionsa.org, frontlinemissionsa.org. We'd love to hear from people. Really appreciate this program. 
is so grateful, Andrew, for all the work you do to ensure that you can keep us informed in this time of deceit and distraction. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Peter. And likewise, you're such an asset to this program. And I can speak for the audience when I say how delighted we are since you started joining us on a weekly basis. So, folks, that being said, uh, you have been listening to The Real Story Behind the Bad War by MS King Part 2. We'll be back with again with you again next week with Part 3. I'll, of course, be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, folks, have a wonderful day and bye for now.